we're back again. Another recording. Another day. Another week. Yep. How was your day? Anything interesting happen? Mm, not really. Not really? No. Mm. Nothing happened with me either. I got some cool news this week. Hmm. Actually, I got it yesterday, technically. Uh, my favorite game series of all time, as you well know, is mm-hmm. the Dragon Age series. Now, I know Bioware is under a ton of controversy. It's a terrible company, but I love the game. They released, after after two years since the release trailer that was like proving that they're working on it, the title of the next Dragon Age game, Dragon Age Dreadwolf. Again, I think it's hilarious that... <laughs> They just released a title. Nothing else. No other details. They were just like, Like, here's the title. Like, that's how far they've gotten. The background looks like it should be a Fortnite DLC, which is great. Oh. Yeah. I'm excited for the storyline, though. However, I will say, for eight years, the the last game, Inquisition, and the final DLC that came out with Inquisition was eight years ago. And since then, we have known one thing and one thing only through all of the releases about the fourth installment. And that is going to be about a specific character named Solus. The end of Dragon Age Inquisition. I don't care if it's a spoiler. The game's been out for eight years. And if you haven't played it yet, you're a bitch. I'm just kidding. I don't mean that. But it's a great series. You don't have to say say things about spoilers for things that have been out for longer than a year, you know? (laughs) I know, but I have to do it to cover my own ass. But no, it's their fault. (laughs) True. So the end of the game, you're like, okay, the next antagonist is going to be Solus. Two years ago, the trailer was released at the EA Sports Awards. Or not EA, the EA Gaming Sports Awards. Guess who the antagonist is going to be? Solus. And then this comes out, and Solus... The antagonist or the protagonist is Solus? The antagonist. Okay. And then they release the title, and it's Dragon Age Dreadwolf. Solus is called the Dreadwolf. And it was like, wow, we've learned absolutely nothing new. Other than it's really far in the future, apparently. That's all we got so far. But I'm still excited because as far as I'm concerned, that is proof that it is in production. You think they're going to have, like, flying wagons now? Oh god, I hope so. That would be cool. They finally got to ride a horse in in Inquisition, so... I don't know. But I'm excited about that. So, that's that's the cool thing that happened to me. Nice. I got that information. I got that news in. I didn't do anything. (laughs) No new update? Nothing weird happened in your life? No. Hmm. Should we get started? Yeah. Cool. This week, I have the criminal. Yeah. I do. I'm excited for this one. So, have you heard about Australia's own Hannah Ector? Catherine Knight. So, this time we're going to move out of the US. Wait, I don't know who Hannah Ector is. It's a playoff of Hannibal Ector. It's the girl version. Did you just make that up, or is that a No, thing? it's an actual thing. I've never heard of that, and I've literally <laughs> read Hannibal. It's the femme version. Why <laughs> would they do that? <laughs> the look you're giving me. I don't know. I don't know the internet. I don't like, understand Like, Hannibal it. wasn't a good person. No. He literally ate people. Well, we're going to get into that. <laughs> Cannibalism. That's this That's this episode. Hannah, did you say Ector or Lecter? Ector. Why is it it? Hannah Ector, not Hannah Lecter? I don't know. So, okay. But anyways, let's get into it. So we're going to be talking about Catherine Knight. So Catherine Mary Knight, known in Aberdeen as the Black Knight, was the first Australian woman to be sentenced to life imprisonment without parole. 
She was convicted of the murder of her partner, John Charles Thomas Price. And That's a name. Yeah. It's a John name. Charles Thomas Price. Yeah. That must have been fun engraving on his tombstone. Must have been expensive. Yeah. Committed the murders in October 2001 and is currently serving her time in Mulawa, Mulawa Correctional Center working as a cleaner. So, the beginning. Catherine Knight was the younger of twins born on October 24th, 1955 in Tenterfield, New South Wales. Her, so Barbara, her mother, her grandmother was apparently an indigenous Australian from the Moree area who had married an Irishman. She was very proud of this fact and liked to think of her own family as aboriginals. I this... don't know why people who name Catherine do that. <laughs> I mean... I guess if she was named Catherine, they were actually, like, doing that shit. But, like, were they doing that Probably not. Her name is Catherine Knight? Mm Mm-hmm. That's, like, that's whiter than Katie Mackey. (laughs) That's that's whiter than my full name. Yeah, your middle name is Elizabeth. Yeah. So back to Catherine. (laughs) This was, okay, so even though... She was proud of the fact and liked to think of her family as aboriginal. This was kept a family secret as there was considerable racism in the area at the time, and this was a source of tension for the children. Apart from her twin, the only person Knight was close to was her uncle, Oscar, who committed suicide. She continues to maintain to this day that his ghost visits her, so. She has a twin? She has a twin. I wonder how her twin feels. That's what I wonder, too. Her twin's older than her. She's the younger of the two. So, Knight's father, Ken, That makes a difference. (laughs) It does. A major difference, obviously. So, Knight's father, Ken, was an alcoholic who openly used violence and intimidation to rape her mother up to ten times a day. Barbara, in turn, often told her daughters intimate details of her sex life and how much she hated sex and men. Later in her life, when Knight complained to her mother that one of the partner, one of her partners wanted to take part in a sex act she didn't want to do, Barbara told her to, quote, put up with it and stop complaining. Knight claims that she was frequently sexually abused by several members of her family, though not by her father, which continued until she was about 11 years old. I guess that just makes him a great guy. Yeah, it makes him father of the year. Ew. Although they have minor doubts about the details, psychiatrists accept her claims as all of her family members confirmed that abuse did happen. Catherine was by all accounts noted to be a pleasant girl who experienced uncontrollable murderous rages in response to minor upsets. I don't- how is she considered a pleasant girl? With with, murderous rages. Yeah, with murderous (laughs) rage. I feel like that's an oxymoron. Those two shouldn't be in the same sentence. Who decided that? I don't know. Apparently, classmates and teachers and people around her. Other adults, basically. When she attended Muswell Brook High School, she became a loner and is remembered by classmates as a bully who stood over smaller children. She assaulted at least one boy at school with a weapon and was one- and once injured a teacher who was found to have acted in self-defense. So she attacked a teacher and he acted in self-defense, which hurt her. You know, whenever I was in school, um... We had an AP who was, like, six feet tall and he looked like Kanye West. (laughs) And whenever there was a fight in school, he would break it up. And this man was, like, huge. And he was, like, just, like, grabbing these kids and just, like, pulling them apart. (laughs) 
that hand motion you did that but in my head i was imagining this like giant man just grabbing them by the scruff of their t-shirts and pulling them apart whenever i was in middle school a kid did punch a teacher in the face Ooh. yeah the teacher didn't do anything back that's a strong man i would beat that kid's ass that happened at my high school did the teacher beat that kid's ass no yeah teachers have a lot of self-control they have so much patience and self-control i could never well by contrast when not in a rage according to everyone (laughs) knight was a model student and often earned rewards for her good behavior what is that (laughs) so she assaulted one kid with a weapon and then attempted to assault a teacher who had to act in self-defense but don't worry she was a model student and she had good behavior enough to where she earned rewards. So, upon leaving school at 15 without having learned to read or write. What the? F- <laughs> How is she a model student? This makes no sense. It, no, it doesn't. How is she a model student and she couldn't read or write? I have no fucking clue. She also made it to 15 without learning how to read or write in school. Wait, were they teaching that in school? I sure hope so. That's. That should be our first question. Were they teaching that? <laughs> I don't know. She was born in 1955, so what? This would put her in the... 60s. Yeah, the 60s. Late 60s, early 70s in Australia. I don't know what they were teaching then. I don't know Apparently not how to read and write. <laughs> I honestly don't know that much about Australia's history, but I know around that time it was pretty rough. Regardless, at 15, she left school, didn't know how to read or write, but... I, I, I think other people knew how to read or write. I don't think it was that bad. To where, no. like, a whole shit ton of people in Australia didn't know how to read or write. <laughs> There's just a group th- that doesn't know think, and had to learn it I in adulthood. I think that was just Catherine. I'm, yeah, it was just Catherine. I don't think Australia was that... No. ...was suffering that bad. <laughs> I, I could be wrong. So they could have not been suffering. I, you know, I don't know. I, di- I didn't dig that deep into it. It was just a funny fact to me, the fact that she was 15, left school, yeah. and didn't know how to read or write still, so... But regardless, uh, she gained employment as a cutter in a clothing factory. A year later, she left to start what she referred to as her dream job, cutting up opal at a local abattoir, or butcher, from where she was quickly promoted to boning and given her own set of butcher knives. At home, she hung the knives over her bed so that they would always be handy, a habit she continued until her incarceration everywhere she lived. So, Catherine Knight... Went through a number of toxic and violent relationships. Knight married her first husband. 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 Say it with me. (laughs) Catherine married her first husband, David Stanford Kellett, in 1974. Kellett was a notoriously heavy drinker, much like her father. But Knight completely dominated him. Her own mother advised him upon their marriage, quote, You better watch this one or she'll fucking kill you. Stir her up the wrong way or do the wrong thing and you're fucked. Don't even think of playing up on her. She'll fucking kill you. Who? Who is letting her do these things? Yeah, they're just letting her do this shit. Everyone's just like, yeah, she'll kill you. And they're just... But otherwise, she's cool. Yeah. (laughs) Like... She has murderous rages every once in a while. But don't worry about it. She's really nice, actually. But like, what... So it's funny that she said that about, like, the she'll fucking kill you. Because on their wedding night, she tried to strangle him. Knight explains that it was because he fell asleep after only having sex three times. Bro, I fall asleep after having sex one time. Same. Like, do not, like, it's, 
If you do it right, you only need to do it once. Yeah. Three times. Catherine. <laughs> the violence oh would continue God. throughout the marriage, usually night against Kellett. On one occasion, a heavily pregnant knight burned all of Kellett's clothing and shoes before hitting him across the back across the back of the head with a frying pan, simply because he had arrived home late from a darts competition after making it into the finals. In fear for his life, Kellett fled to a neighbor's house, later being treated for a badly fractured skull. Police wanted to charge her, but Knight talked Kellett into dropping the charges. He left her shortly after the birth of their first child in May 1976, which she didn't handle well. The next day, Knight was seen pushing her new baby in a stroller down Main Street, violently throwing it from side to side. <laughs> that's, that's not funny. It's, I'm just the, thinking of, like, whenever you see a little kid doing that with their toy, and, like, they're, like, swinging it side to side, like... Yeah, that's basically what she was doing. Who, like, uh... This story always, like, weirds me out, because I'm like, how... How did she get, how do all these psychopaths get people to stay with them for so long despite being so horrible? I, bro, I really don't. Because I'm like, it would have been the first, it would have been the first fight I'd have been like, get out. I'm not even that bad and I can't get anyone to stay. Like, <laughs> Same. What are we doing wrong? Apparently, not killing people? We're not psychotic enough apparently. You know, it does seem to be that the most psychotic people are in the happiest relationship. <laughs> <laughs> Katie. <laughs> oh, you're right, though. <laughs> it's like the people that, like, get the vials of blood for a necklace to give to their boyfriend they're like here so you have a piece of me always like why does no one think that that's that's terrifying why does everyone think that's cute like that's like that's a that's a biohazard (laughs) like dude that thing busts open you're done for like literally (laughs) uh i guess we're just not crazy enough we need to be more psychotic (sighs) well (laughs) So she was violently. Likes me. <laughs> you have to be a Yandere character. You have to be. Oh, what's her name? I can't believe I forgot. From Claymore. Claire. Yeah. I love Claire. Um. She's not really Yandere. No, she's not. She's very stoic. That's true. She's like the protect. There's actually no Yandere's in that show. Oh wait, I was thinking of the wrong show. I don't know why I thought I thought it was Claymore. Future Diary, the girl with oh. pink hair. Oh. Um. Yandere is, is Yandere is her. Was Yuki her name? You know. You know. We got to be more like you know from Future Diary. I'm not gonna lie, I was in love with her too. So. Yeah. <laughs> I Although, literally I can't talk though about like psychos being hot because literally every fictional character that I've ever fallen in love with with I say fallen in love with every fictional character that I adore is usually psychotic <laughs> to some degree. I and I'm like red flag. Oh, don't worry about it. Red's my favorite color. And like we just move on. 
The fact that I haven't ended up in an extremely abusive relationship is a surprise to me. Yeah. Yeah. I'm surprised. <laughs> so, anyways. So, after being seen violently throwing her baby from side to side, Knight was admitted to St. Elmo's Hospital in Tamworth, where she was diagnosed with postnatal depression and spent several weeks recovering. After being released, Knight placed two-month-old Melissa on a railway line shortly before the train was due, then stole an axe, went into town, and threatened to kill several people. A man known in the district as Old Ted, who was near the, near the railway line, it's really hard to say those really close together apparently, found and rescued Melissa only minutes before the train passed. Knight was arrested and again taken to St. Elmo's Hospital, but apparently recovered, signed herself out the following day. You just tried to kill your child and several other people. Yeah. She's like, oh, it's fine. It was just a weird episode. Don't worry about it. Kellett eventually learned of these encounters and returned to her to care for her. In 1980, the couple oh, had a second just child. take the child away from her and throw her somewhere. <laughs> that's what I said. I was like, what do you mean go back to her? They you, have that's a when you fight back. <laughs> that's when you, you fight for custody and you disappear. Like. No, but he went back to her I to. I Melissa never talked to her again. I really hope so. <laughs> I don't think so because uh, her, like, birth children don't come up in other part of this. Who? My brother is calling me Why on Discord. Hang up on him. I have to. You can't mute him. No, I can't. I'm gonna turn on. Do not disturb. What if whenever we finish this, like you're gonna have like five missed calls on your phone from him? <laughs> in which case I'll be like bro I was recording I had priorities so <laughs> he goes back to her to take care of her and in 1980 the couple had a second child four years later Knight left Kellett and began another shitstorm relationship so Knight met 38 year old minor David Saunders in 1986 a few months later he moved in with her and her two daughters although he kept his old apartment in Scone Knight soon became jealous regarding what he did when she wasn't around and would often throw him out. <laughs> he would later move back into his apartment in Scone, and then she would invariably follow and beg for him to return. He would regret returning. In May 1987, she cut the throat of his two-month-old dingo pup in front of him oh for no more reason God. than as an example of what would happen if he ever had an affair. Ugh. What? <laughs> She then knocked him out with a frying pan. Did he stay with her after that? No. No? Did um, he go back to her? Yeah. Like... Because she was pregnant. So? In June 1988, she gave birth to her third daughter, Sarah, which prompted Saunders to put a deposit on a house which Knight paid off with her workers' compensation from a back injury upon returning to work at the butcher. 
Knight notably decorated the house throughout with like weird shit. Specifically, animal skins, skulls, horns, rusty animal traps, leather jackets, old boots, machetes, rakes, pitchforks. No space, including the ceiling, was left uncovered. See, if if there was like some space and it was like nicely put in like a feng shui thing, she would just been considered like indie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's avant-garde. But... The relationship ended after an argument where she hit Saunders in the face with an iron before stabbing him in the stomach with a pair of scissors. Oh my god. He moved back to Scone, but when he later returned home, she had cut up all of his clothes. Saunders took a long, a long service leave and went into hiding following the attack. Knight tried to find him. She tried to find him. But no one admitted to knowing where he was. Several months later... Those are good people. (laughs) Yeah. Several months later, he returned to see his daughter and found that Knight had gone to the police and told them she was afraid of him. They issued her with an apprehended violence order, basically a restraining order, Mm -hmm. against him. So... What the... She literally has records of being a piece of shit. And they're like, oh yeah... We'll get you that. We'll get you that. (laughs) So, uh, apparently, I guess he just dropped it after that. He was like, fuck this, I'm not even gonna try. Because the next relationship doesn't have much info on what happened. In 1990, Knight became pregnant by a 43-year-old former co-worker, John Chillingworth, and gave birth the following year to a boy named Eric. Their relationship lasted three years before she left him for a man that she'd been having an affair with for for some time, John Price, the final and worst of them all. So, John Pricey Price was the father of three when Knight had an affair with him. Reputedly a a terrific bloke. Liked by everyone who knew him, his own marriage had ended in 1988. While his two-year-old daughter had remained with his former wife, the two older children lived with him. Price was well aware of Knight's violent reputation, and yet she moved into his house in 1995. What? Why? His children liked her. He was making a lot of money working at the local mines. And Those apart are from the children, and apart from the violent arguments, life was a bunch of roses. His own quote. What is? Not his own quote. Her quote. Oh, her quote. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's probably because their arguments included him, like, running away from her. Probably. I would. However, in 1998, they had a fight over Price's refusal to marry her. And in retaliation, Knight videotaped items that he had stolen from work and sent the tapes to his boss. Although, the items were out-of-date medical kits that he had scavenged from the company's rubbish bin, Price was fired from the job that he had held for 17 years over it. Uh, I would... No, you can't fight that bitch. She's scary. <laughs> the same day, he kicked her out and she returned to her own, her own home while news of what she had done spread throughout the town. A few months later, Price restarted the relationship, although now he refused to allow her to move in with him. Why would you do that? <laughs> I don't know why all of them keep going back. Like, what about her... Oh my god. 
The fighting became even more frequent, and most of his friends would no longer have anything to do with him while they remained together. The relationship would last until 2000. So, the murder. In February 2000, a series of assaults on Price accumulated with Knight stabbing him in the chest. Finally fed up, he kicked her out of the house. On February 29th, he stopped at the Scone Magistrate Court on his way to work and took out a restraining order to keep her away from both him and his children. That afternoon, Price told his co-workers that if he did not come to work the next day, it would be because Knight had killed him. They pleaded with him not to go home, but he told them that he believed that she would kill his children if he didn't. Oh my god. Price arrived home to find that Knight, although not there, although not there themselves, had sent the children away for a sleepover at a friend's house. He then spent the evening with his neighbors before going to bed at 11 p.m. She wasn't there either, by the way. Uh-huh. So he just showed up and they were gone. And she was like, I sent them to someone else. So earlier that day, Knight had bought a new black lingerie set and had videotaped all the children while making comments, which have since been interpreted interpreted as crude will interpreted he said interpreted interpreted it's fine interpreted (laughs) you're fine i was i was trying to actually read it and not fuck up i knew i was going to it's fine it's fine it reminded me of tater tots (laughs) oh man i'm hungry so they were interpreted as crude will. I have no clue what that means. I searched Google and all I got was crude oil. Well, what does crude mean? Crude is like dirty, gross. Well, so, she had bad intentions. That's what I got from it. Yeah. So. Knight later arrived at Price's house while he was sleeping and sat watching TV for a few minutes before having a shower. She then woke up Price and they had sex after which he fell asleep. Once he fell asleep, she stabbed him. Oh my. He attempted to run away upon waking from said stabbing, but she caught up to him and she ended up stabbing him over 36 times. Oh my god. Once John was dead... Knight then methodically skinned the corpse, taking off everything. The face, ears, scalp, the neck, like like some macabre suit. Save for a small square inch on his skin, where the scar from where she had stabbed him previously was. So she just left a little cube for that. The skin was then hung up in an entranceway of the house. But it doesn't end there. Yeah, I know. <laughs> she also decapitated it and chopped up his butt. After she decapitated him, Knight cooked the parts taken, the head and the booty bits, mm-hmm. serving up the meat with baked potatoes, pumpkin, zucchini, cabbage, yellow squash, and gravy. Ugh. There were two settings at the dinner table, along with a note beside each plate having the names of one of Price's children on it. She was preparing to serve him to his own children. Uh, A third meal was found thrown on the back lawn for unknown reasons, though the general consensus of opinions is that the general consensus of opinions is that she ate part of John Price 
and found that what she did was so abhorrent that she yeeted it. But it's all speculative. And this has been put forward in support of her claim that she has no memory of committing the crime. Price's head was found in a pot with vegetables. The pot was still warm, estimated to be between 40 to 50 degrees Celsius or 104 to 122 degrees Fahrenheit, indicating that the cooking had taken place in the early morning. Sometime later, Knight arranged what remained of the scalp's body with the left arm draped over an empty one quarter liter soft drink bottle with uh, the legs crossed. Uh, this was claimed in court to be an act of defilement demonstrating Knight's contempt for price and drinking. Knight left a blood-stained, flesh-covered, handwritten note on top of a broken photograph of Price that read, Time you got back, Jonathan, for wrapping my duder. You beck for Ross for little John. Now play with little John's dick, John Price. The accusations in the note were found to be groundless. She also misspelled so much of it. What What was? What does that even mean? The note, like... The the translation through it was supposedly she was accusing Price of raping her daughter and molesting his own children. The um, accusations were found to be totally groundless. Yeah. Oh, his discovery. Price's employer became concerned when he didn't arrive at work the next day and contacted police to check on him. At the same time, the neighbor that Price had stayed with noticed his work truck was still as, was still in the garage as well as Catherine's car. Knowing their relationship, he worried and took it upon himself to go check. Attempts were made by the neighbor and another friend to wake the victim by knocking on his bedroom window. They then went to the front door where they saw a small amount of blood on the wooden exterior. Police were then contacted and arrived at about 8 a.m. where they forced their way into the house through the back door. Upon entry, the police located the victim's exterior layers of skin hanging from the hook in the doorway arch. And then they That's located disgusting. the decapitated head. <laughs> that is so disgusting. They eventually found the re what remained of him on the floor near a small foyer leading to the front door. They soon found Catherine snoring loudly. They soon found Catherine snoring loudly in a comatose condition in the bedroom after having taken what looked like a number of pills. She was removed from the house immediately by police and later conveyed to the hospital by ambulance. Though, <laughs> obviously, she got tried for the murder. Um, she was arrested for it, and so Knight's initial offer to plead guilty to manslaughter was rejected, and she was arraigned on February 2nd, 2001. Yeah, that does not sound like fucking manslaughter. I don't care how <laughs> crazy you are. That that's, <laughs> that's, that's a little more than just that's manslaughter. Way overkill. On the charge of murdering Price, to which she entered a plea of not guilty. Her trial was initially fixed for July 23rd, 2001, but was adjourned due to her counsel's illness and was refixed for Octo October 15th, 2001. When the trial commenced, Justice Barry O'Keefe offered the 60 jury prospects the option of being excused due to the nature of the photographic evidence, which five accepted. When the witness list was read out to the prospects, several more also dropped out. Yeah, I, I mean, I feel sick just listening to this. Yeah. 
this led to a small augmentation being necessary, so it kind of got delayed to the next day. So Knight's attorney then spoke to the judge who adjourned to the following day. The next morning, Knight changed her plea to guilty, and the jury was dismissed. However, it was later made public that Justice O'Keefe had been advised of the plea change the day before. He had adjourned the trial and then ordered a psychiatric assessment overnight to determine if Knight understood the consequences of a guilty plea and was fit to make such a plea. Knight's legal team had planned to defend Knight by claiming amnesia and dissociation. However, while being questioned back when they arrested her, Knight mentioned that she had amnesia, which is why she had no recollection recollection of the murder. Though it was discovered that after she had allegedly murdered Price, Catherine had gone into Aberdeen and withdrawn $1,000 from Price's bank account from an automatic teller machine. Because of the amnesia claim, Knight was seen by three different psychiatrists who all said that she did not suffer from dementia. However, she was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, but this disorder did not cause her actions. Yeah, I mean, I've never... Yeah. (laughs) No reason has ever been given for the guilty plea, and despite giving it, Knight... No reason has ever been given for the guilty plea, and despite giving it, Knight still refused to accept responsibility for the actions. To this day, she maintains that all she recalls of that night is that they had good sex, both came, then she remembers that Pricey got out of his bed to go for a pee and watched him come back into the bedroom. After that, she presumes that she fell she fell asleep, and that was that. At the sentencing hearing, Knight's lawyers requested that Knight be excused to avoid hearing some of the facts, but the application was refused. When Dr. Timothy Lyons took to the stand and described the skinning and decapitation, Knight became so hysterical she had to be sedated. On November 8th, Justice O'Keefe pointed out that the nature of the crime and Knight's lack of remorse required a severe penalty. He sentenced her to life imprisonment, refused a fixed non-parole period, and ordered that her papers be marked never to be released. The first time that this had ever been imposed on a woman in Australian history. Uh, Rightly so. That bitch is fucked up. (laughs) In June 2006, Knight actually appealed the life sentence, claiming that a penalty of life in jail without the possibility of parole was too severe for the killing. Well, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, you She's and... Some sick shit. <laughs> yeah. Don't worry, though. Justices Peter McClellan, Michael Adams, and Megan Latham dismissed the appeal in the NSW Court of Criminal Appeals in September. With Justice McClellan writing in his judgment, this was an appalling crime almost beyond contemplation in a civilized society. Yeah, that's... And that, my good friend, Uh, is the Catherine Knight murder. Technically, the John Price murder by Catherine Knight. That's that's just disgusting. I... It's so gross. It is such a fucked up case. People may disagree, but honestly, I don't care how bad your mental illness is. When you get to that point of chopping people up, you need to be put away. She should have been put the away the rest, first time yeah. she started stabbing people. That's my you, thing. You need to be... You cannot be with society if every single time, if you get off of some meds or you've never taken meds and you just start chopping people up. 
Yeah. Or stabbing them or, like, no. Attacking people. You. T- I feel like the point should have been when, A, she stabbed her first husband. When she tried to strangle him on their wedding night. Yeah. That's not even including that through school she attacked two people. Yeah, and, like, the question didn't would be, even like, consider Juvie? at that point... Whenever she was, I mean, mental health wasn't, like, seen as that important back Mm -hmm. then, but, like, a lot of that seems like it could have been prevented if they, like, recognized her violent outrages and actually took her to get help. Especially not let her go to a hospital Mm. where she could apparently check herself out. Yeah, like, that's also, who the fuck let her check herself out whenever she threatened to kill people and tried to leave her baby on a railway? Literally the day before. Yeah. Like, you think she's okay after that? She was there for two weeks, gets out, tries to kill her kid, threatens a group of people, goes back in, and she's like, oh, JK, I'm fine. Even if she seems, like, in a, like, okay state of mind, like, you really think that other people are safe around her? It just seems like, like, she just had so many, like, red flags, so many horrible things that she did before this that... There were so many different points that they like, could have avoided were this. There, there were was, yeah. such obvious signs, too. And nobody really did anything about them. I think that's what makes it the case the most fucked up part about yeah. it, is that like all of that could have been prevented way, way sooner. Yeah. And they just chose not to. But now she has infamy for being the first woman to ever receive life imprisonment in Australia. I think I've read somewhere that she's considered one of the like sickest... Yeah. murderers of all time which i believe because that shit is ugh, it's no, too method. i also like it's too methodical for it to be like oh i don't know i just dissociated yeah i just dissociate i don't remember a thing girl you thought way too much into that you had the ingredients prepared you chose specific places to cut out she sent the children away yeah and who knows what she was planning to do like with the kids after like they came back mm-hmm. if the police hadn't gotten there yeah if the neighbor hadn't been like mm, something's funky like she was yeah. well, apparently her intention was she was going to feed them their own father yeah i just like after that it, it makes me wonder like did she have more plans probably i wouldn't put it past and her she's fucked up i'm glad that she's never getting out i yeah she is stuck being a cleaner in prison for the rest of her days. So Absolutely disgusting person. But, yeah. So that was my criminal. Nice. Well, let's take a break. So, today I'm going to do one of my favorite cryptids. Again. Is it a sea monster? Um, not really. Oh. It's a life monster. Oh. <laughs> Water monsters, okay. <laughs> so, so today I'm going to be doing the Igopogo. Igopogo? Igopogo. Igopogo. Yeah. That's a fun word. Igopogo. Igopogo. It's Igo. also known as the Kempenfelt Kelly, after the bay that extends from Lake Simcoe into Barrie, Ontario, Canada. The, the city of Barrie actually has, like, a statue of the Igopogo. Is it made out of Legos? No. Oh. In Beaverton, Ontario, it's called the Beaverton Bessie. (laughs) Wait, that's so cute. 
the Beaverton Bessie. Yeah. I love that. And it's also called Lock Simcoe Monster. Lock Simcoe Monster. Yeah, because they make Simcoe. Huh. Well, that's why they call the Loch Ness Monster the Loch Ness Monster. Is that what it's called? Is that what the lake is called or the area? Loch? Yeah. It's it's the Ness Loch. I didn't know that that was what the the area was called. That's what the loch is called. I didn't Usually know that. Usually people just call it the loch, though. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay, interesting information. Learn something new every day. So is this like a distant cousin? Uh, no. Oh. The Igopogo, its origins come from Canadian folklore. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, so it's not to be confused with the Ogopogo in Lake Okanagan in British Columbia. The name of the Igopogo was loosely based off of like a comic strip that was published in 1952 and the Pogo slogan for the strip was Igopogo after one of the characters. The the strip, I looked up the history because I like newspapers. You do. I, it's, you know what, newspapers are pretty interesting. <laughs> uh, so this was a daily comic strip created by Walt Kelly, and it ran from 1948 to 1975, mm-hmm. and it was set in the Okefenokee Swamp in southeastern U.S. It was following anthropomorphic animal characters, and the title character was an opossum. Yes. <laughs> It was, it was written for both adults and children, so it had, like, political satire and social issues in there. Oh, yeah, the shit that just goes over was, a kid's head, but the adult's like, ha. Yeah, it ha, was, ha. it was a bit, it was kind of popular. It was distributed by Post Hall Syndicate, and the, the strip even earned Walt Kelly a Rubin Award in 1951. Wow. The Igopogo also got its name from the Huron First Nation folklore. They described the Igopogo as a massive, long-necked serpent that surfaces on eerie, moonlit nights. A dramatic sea dragon. <laughs> so, so the descriptions of what the Igopogo looks like is, like, it varies quite a bit. Writer George M. Eberhardt described it as a gray, seal-like animal that ranged anywhere between 12 and 70 feet long. That's a really wide range. Yeah. I don't know measurements for shit. We know this. Yeah. So my dad's six feet tall. Imagine I'm imagining two, two of, of my father's. And that's roughly what my brain is depicting it. That's, that's basically what it is. Two of your father's. 12 to 70 feet? Mm-hmm. That's that's pretty inconsistent. I'm hmm. Yeah. Hmm. There's more. Oh yeah. Uh so it's described as having either a dog or horse like head. <laughs> and it has very prominent eyes, a gaping mouth, and dorsal fins and like a fish like tail. The most of the alleged sightings describe it this way, but there are a few that like differ. One that is wildly different comes from a witness named E.J. Delaney, who said that the Igopogo had two long antennae, four octopus-like arms, three pairs of legs, and six gill-like appendages with feathers. With, with, 
What in the HP Lovecraft? <laughs> I would be more terrified of seeing that than I would, like, a snake Yeah. Creature. It's, like, it's kind of going, like, okay. You discussed, like, the full history of, of like, sea monsters or sea serpents in general. Mm-hmm. That description is up there with how scary the artistic renderings of Leviathan is in my yeah. brain. I'm like, that, Yeah, no. he, he saw Leviathan. Yeah. He must have had, that was a come to Jesus moment. <laughs> yeah, Literally. So a lot of people believe that based off of these descriptions, aside from Delaney's, is that the witnesses that claim to have seen the Igopogo might have just actually been seeing other animals like seals. It always comes back to seals when it comes to sea serpents, I'm noticing. Yeah. So what makes the Igopogo different from a lot of other like freshwater monsters is that it has a canine-esque head, which uh, many believers speculate that it's related to another canine-like aquatic cryptid known as the Dobarchu, mm. which looks like a slimy otter. It does. It looks, like a, it looks like a slimy otter. According to eyewitness accounts, it has been seen sunbathing for long periods of time, like outside of water, which means that it can breathe air. So it's not like a fish. This, Whenever I was researching this, this is whenever I took that What Cryptid Are You quiz and I got the Ahul, mm-hmm. the flying gorilla. Oh. <laughs> That's like my new favorite cryptid. Flying gorilla. <laughs> the flying gorilla. I just imagine that, that during you. like Vietnam or something. <laughs> Vietnam. Yeah. There's a flying gorilla. It just flies and like lands. <laughs> yeah. It matches you. It sounds like it's probably extremely chaotic. I yeah. Yeah. So so sources refer to an early native legend of a sea serpent in the lake during the 19th century as well. According to John Robert Colombo, author of Mysterious Canada, no two sightings of the creature really coincide. Its neck has sometimes been described as a stovepipe as well. Stovepipe. Which I don't know how I w- I don't know how to imagine that as like a creature. No. But like how do you how do you see this thing? You're like stovepipe. That's what yeah. it looks like. I have no idea. I think of a stovepipe in my brain is just like so it was straight. I guess. No, the, the older stovepipes they do a little curve at the end. Oh, oh, I know which ones you're talking about. Yeah, but even then it's still like does like a pretty hard line yeah. and then like an S. I'm like, that's I'm like, some I very serious joints. One. Maybe. The broken neck. But then, like, <laughs> what broke its neck? <laughs> Conspiracy. So let's let's talk about the sightings. There's a shit ton of sightings of the Igopogo. So, so the very first sighting was supposedly in 1823 by David Souls and his brother. 1823? Yes. When yeah. they were early settlers of the area. So this Ooh. area, this this place was just being settled. So it's a little under 200 years old. Yes. Ooh, fascinating. Uh, so while tending to his sheep in on the Kempenfelt Bay, Souls and his brother heard a splash in the water, and they saw like a long creature leaving wakes in the water and mm-hmm. a trail of mud, or a trail in the mud. by the water so they they followed it and it went toward a swampy area 
and they said that it had like fin like appendages and it was very large and very ugly that's rude uh they they indicated that it was about 35 feet long because remember they were like talking about it they pointed they were like standing in one place and then like pointed to another like end of the street and the whenever they measured it out it was like a, around 35 feet long hmm. at least they actually measured he didn't get a measuring tape and measure the monster, so, like, he is kind of just estimating it. Mm, I guess so. The next sighting was in May of 1900. A group of boys... This one is so weird. This is such a weird sighting. Mm. So a group of boys wanted to spend the evening out fishing, so they went down to the wharf at the foot of uh, Mulcaster Street on a Tuesday night. While they were fishing, one of the younger boys just started screaming, and he was like pointing toward the water there was a large dark object swimming toward the wharf and it like lifted itself partly out of the water and the boys were so frightened that they dropped all of their stuff and ran away as fast as they could oh he was like, just coming to say fishing hi. rods and stuff he's just come to say hi yeah i'm not gonna lie though if i was just chilling at a lake and i saw that coming towards me same reaction i'd be like fuck that and I'd run. yeah i've watched too much river monsters <laughs> yeah. A passerby heard their screaming and he went down to like see what was going on. If like I don't know, I guess he was just curious or something. And he described the creature as having a horse-like head that lifted from the water and it was like flapping the water with a fan-like tail. As some people went down there and they started throwing stones at it. Oh, that's rude. Yeah, it didn't really seem bothered by the stones, though. And it kind of just, like, hung out there till it felt like going back into the water. That creature has so much patience, then. Yeah. It's just like, oh, don't worry. I'm getting stoned right now, but it's fine. It's fine. I wish I was getting stoned right now, too. <laughs> Some more sightings occurred in 1903 and 1906. In May of 1903, the North Advance said that a couple of Grand Trunk detectives were badly scared by a creature... That appeared within a few rods of their boat on a Tuesday. Tuesday <laughs> on, seems to be its day. Yeah. I like that it has a specific day that it likes the most out of the week. It's like, Tuesday's my I'm, day. I'm just assuming that because both of these sightings took place on a Tuesday. <laughs> uh, the men's agitation, like, whenever they were retelling the story, seemed genuine. So they, nobody really doubted that they actually saw it. They said that it had a head like a dog and that it had horns. And... The way they described it was that it, like, bobbed its head out of water and just as quickly it went back down. So it was, like, too fast for them to get, like, a really good description of it. Another major sighting was in 1952 by four witnesses, one of which was Wellington Charles, who was chief of the Georgina Island First Nation. I'm noticing that a lot of cryptids have massive sightings in the 50s. I didn't know what was happening about then. Besides the UFO war. Um, oh. hysteria. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Aliens and creatures and oogie boogies who walk the streets at night. Well, also in 1952, there were a lot of scientific... Um, Upgrades. Yeah, there <laughs> Discoveries, was like, all of that shit was yeah, starting up. So, yeah, so people were like, oh, like science can explain everything. Just like, just like in the last uh, cryptid episode of mine... Mm -hmm. sightings of things seem to increase with the more technological advances we get which may just be because like 
we can share them easier and easier. Oh, the power of social media networking. Yeah. So the best account, this one was very descriptive. So the best account is known from a minister, um, a funeral director, and both of their families who were boating in Cook's Bay in 1963. Reverend Bill Williams, his wife, and two children joined Neil and Marjorie Lafeng and their child to go boating on their cruiser. They said that this event took place around like 7 p.m. that day, which is when the water is known to look just like a mirror, like they said. Uh, Neil said that he was operating the boat, so he was like sitting up a little higher than everyone else. And he turned his head, and as soon as he did, everyone else did too. Like they all just simultaneously turned. Hive mentality. I'm just kidding. (laughs) I agree. I concur. Uh, He said that he remembers Reverend Williams saying, Great Scott, it's a lake monster. (laughs) We need to bring that phrase back. Great Scott. I want that tattooed onto me. Yes. Great Scott, it's a lake monster. You should get that tattooed and have the funniest little doodle of like a little sea serpent with like the little waves. (laughs) (laughs) So comparing the beast to his 26 foot cruiser... Neil said that the creature was anywhere between 30 and 70 feet long. The beast was traveling along the waterline with water like just barely rolling over its head, so it hadn't really broken the surface yet. Uh, They said it had four dorsal fins poking out of the water about six to seven feet below the head, and about they were about 10 inches long. He said it was a charcoal colored and scaly. Another eight feet, so six, seven feet after the head, there were the four dorsal fins, and then eight feet after that were another set of dorsal fins. Uh, Neil was immediately convinced that he had just seen a sea mon- or a lake monster. The, the group didn't really want to tell anyone because they didn't want to be seen as crazy, but the word got around somehow, and Reverend Williams gave his report on the Barry radio station. Peter Costello's book, In Search of Lake Monsters, he describes the account in much more depth, and it's it's pretty interesting. I haven't read that book, but like the, the sighting was kind of interesting. Another sighting took place in August of 1979, around 6.30 p.m., again when the water is supposed to be very calm and like glass, basically. A woman said that she spotted an Igo- she spotted the Igopogo while driving. Uh, she she reportedly told a news reporter, "I'm not pulling your leg. I wasn't drunk, and I'm not going nuts, but it was there. Believe me." She and a couple of friends were driving along Lake Drive past Willow Beach in Georgina when they spotted a big hump in the water, and it was moving toward the shore. One of the friends said that there was no way that the rock would that like a rock would be that big in the lake yeah let alone moving yeah yeah the moving part would get me yeah that, that would be kind Rocks of like don't a little usually bit. move no not normally unless they um, move when we're not looking have you heard about that have you seen that anywhere yeah, yeah. <laughs> i think what if they're actually soft and when you touch them they harden up as a defense mechanism? I love that shit on the internet, by the way. That's funny to me. <laughs> but yeah, I think the, the moving part of the rock or the boulder uh, would may or may not be a little bit of a tip-off. Yeah. 
So, so they said that the creature was about 100 yards offshore when they first spotted it, and they said it that it scared the absolute hell out of them. As it was coming to the shore, they said the humps looked like rocks that had been in the water for far too long and were turning brown. The water rippled around it in really big circles that came into shore about 25 feet, and as soon as it got into the shore, it made an abrupt turn and started heading back into the deep part of the lake. When, when it went out, they said that there were foot-high waves coming into the beach, but further out into the water, there were no waves. They said there was a girl in a canoe, like, in the water, and there was, like, a friend of the girl's standing on the shore during the sighting, and the creature came really close to her, and they said she seemed like she was mesmerized. Mesmerized. Yeah, like, frozen. I mean, I would freeze up, too, if I saw that. You just see something, like, working its way through the ocean that you don't recognize, you're like, uh... When the creature, like, went back out into the deep water... The girl, like, pulled the canoe in, and, like, they just left. They packed up and left the beach. Fair. The day after the event, one of the women in the car heard a news report about another woman in Barrie seeing the creature around an hour after after they did, while she was sailing on the other side of the lake, which is what encouraged her to go and, like, report their sighting. Whenever they were telling the New Market Era newspaper... They didn't want to use their real names, so the newspaper dropped the story at the time. A week after this incident, a Snake Island cottager was fishing near the shore and felt something brush under his small boat and saw it resurface about 10 feet away from him. He told reporters that it was the ugliest thing I have ever seen. That's rude. He said the creature was between 20 to 30 feet in length. And it had the head of a boxer dog and an array of fins or flippers along its body. I This man must have been very colorful. Because one of the quotes I found of him saying was, and I quote, It looked like three trout mated together with a boxer dog. <laughs> That's a hell of a description. Yeah. Also, how did he come up with that? Yeah, that was going to be my question is how... How is that what your brain created? I guess points for creativity, though. So, there was another, there was an updated remark that said that it was over 15 feet long and it had to weigh around a thousand pounds. I couldn't really find much more on that. But the people that saw it said they feared they were going to be devoured by a creature with a camel's hump and a seven foot long tail. They fear being eaten by a water camel. Yes, basically. In 1983, Sonar operator William W. Scrypitz reported a large animal with a long neck on his reading. Some disputed this and said that the reading could have just been a school of fish being read as one creature, like Mm. one mass. And in 2005, life science investigators suggested that the sightings that people were seeing could be explained by otters swimming in a line and diving in and out. I, okay, I guess, but otters are pretty small. Unless this thing is, like, super skinny. I've been imagining it as, like, like the Loch Ness Monster kind of being, like, a little bit big and fat. Or not fat, girthy. I mean, I don't know, because it's, like, a snake-like thing. So, I'm not, I'm not really sure, like, how big around it would be. Mm. 
boat captain Jerry Clayton, who had been working on Lake Simcoe for over 18 years, said that there were otters, beavers, minks, and other similar animals in and around the lake, but he didn't believe that, they, that those animals were responsible for the sightings. Clayton showed investigators the sonar footage that Scripitz had from 1983, and they did determine that there were clearly individual fish in that, and that the larger forms were just an old sonar reading of smaller schools of fish being read as one mass. The They used a, an underwater camera to like survey the lake to try to find it, mm-hmm. and they said that they had no footage of monstrous fish at all. During the... This one is... This is where it gets kind of wild. So during the 1980s, author, cryptozoologist, and president of the British Columbia Scientific Cryptozoology Club, John Kirk III... That's a mouthful. (laughs) Yeah. He investigated the Igopogo, and he concluded that whatever it was in the lake either migrated out of it or died. Aww. Uh, His opinion changed, though, when he was sent some particular footage. So in 1991, there was a video recording of a large seal-like animal sent to Kirk by former British Army officer and fellow cryptozoologist Don Hepworth. The video was purportedly shot from the shores of Lake Simcoe by an anonymous videographer. The video shows a, quote, lake demon rearing its head up during a hydroplane race. So, according to the videographer, one of the racers she knew experienced a mechanical breakdown while on the south side of the lake during the race, and they had to stop to make repairs. While while the racer was, like, lifting up the hatch to the engine, there was... A large animal that seemed to surface from the water like right in front of him mm. and it like stunned the racer and there were spectators watching it happen uh, Kirk confirmed that the creature was between 9 to 12 feet in length and had mammal and pinniped like features from the footage that he saw I forgot what pinniped was but y'all can figure it out google it uh, <laughs> Which is what I'm going to do after this. (laughs) So, despite the video footage, which is known to be extremely difficult to find, I could not find it at all. Skeptics insist that the sightings may be nothing more than normal seals who have slipped into the lake through the rivers that connect to Lake Huron. Some people think that the Igopogo is more related to... A Pacific Ocean sea monster called the Cadborosaurus. Cadborosaurus. Yes. Let me guess. It descends from dinosaurs. Probably. Probably. I didn't look it up. It's the saurus part. That's all. I'm like, hmm. In 2016, John Kirk, he went onto the Shirley Solomon show, and he claimed to have that footage of the Igopogo, but he didn't show it. He said that he wasn't going to show it without the consent of the people that sent it to him. Uh, Live Science interviewed a local businessman of Barrie named Arch Brown, who claimed to have coined the name of Kempenfelt Kelly for the Igopogo. He said that he has had about four sightings of the monster himself. 
He said that he was aware that he'd been predisposed to believe in the existence of the Igopogo because his father was from Scotland and had told him about the Loch Ness Monster. Um, he knew of the Ogopogo because he'd lived in British Columbia before he moved to Barrie. And when he moved to Barrie, he was prompted by local reports to be on the lookout for the Igopogo, and he would spend hours looking for it. Dedicated. Um, I appreciate that. Yeah. He, he said that he'd always seen it from a distance and described it as having a dark gray, serpent-like body and a dog-shaped head. He said it, like, swims up and down. It swims in an up and down motion like a caterpillar. He said that it had an impish look with a kind disposition that kept it from frightening children. Oh, Like, kids are not fuck, afraid of this thing. Fuck all the guys that were like, it's ugly. It sounds cute to me. Finally, many fishermen have had their lines mysteriously snapped in the lake by an unknown force. And boaters have said that they have spotted a huge creature creeping up from the depths of the water while they mm. were out. And that is the Igopogo. It sounds adorable. Right? I love the Igopogo. It's just like, you know, he's just doing his thing in his little lake. I... Seems like he like wanted, in the beginning, he was like, I just want to make friends. He was probably lonely in that lake all by himself. I don't know if there's fish in there. Or he just seemed curious. And all these people were like freaking out. Reasonably. But still, like, sounds cute to me. With dog am... head, gray. Oh, I wish I could see that video of it. Doesn't sound like he's doing yeah. anything. He's just chilling. Yeah, it it it's had never chilling. been reported to like hurt anyone. Yeah, it kind of just like comes up and then goes back down. <laughs> it just comes up and dips. <laughs> yeah, I love. I like the last guy the most. Sea monsters. I know you do. They're fun. They are fun. They're also, I think they're also scary, just sea monsters specifically. I they, mentioned this there's before. There's no telling how big they can get. Yeah. There's no telling how big they can get. There's no telling what, like, weird abilities they might have, because fish have some weird shit that they can do. Yeah, just the ones that we know about, too. Yeah. But, yeah. Yep. That was this episode. We discussed the Black Knight, Catherine Knight. And the Igopogo. I like monster. I guess it's time to end this. I guess that's our cue from the Babadook over here. So, this has been Criminal. Slash Cryptid. Bye! Bye.